Hello, this is Pastor Trent. I want to welcome you to the Mountain Home Church, the Nazarene Sermon Podcast. We are thrilled that you are tuning in to hear sermons from our ministries here at our church. It is our hope that the Spirit of Christ would be present with you as you listen today. I do want to take just a moment to invite you to reach out and connect with us. On our website, we have a way for you to do just that. You can visit www.mhnazarene.org slash connect and fill out a very brief form. There's a spot to leave contact info, ask questions, and even to request prayer. Also, be sure to indicate that you listen to us through our SoundCloud podcast to let us know where you're listening. May the Lord be with you this day. Grace and peace to you. We have a special guest this morning, and Connie will share a little bit more. But in the Church of the Nazarene, we have the privilege to be mission partnership, both locally and globally. And so today we'll get to hear part of what that might look like and what that is. And as a Nazarene church, we are able, it's so cool, because we're able to come alongside those who, and equip them and to empower them and then send them off. And some are locally and some are globally. And so we just um, are so excited of the work that God is doing in both of those areas. And we're going to get a chance to hear about that. First, I would like to invite Connie to come up and she can introduce our guest. I just met Lydia Campbell White this morning, and I'm excited to hear from her and how God has called her and used her. She uh, grew up in the Pacific Northwest and graduated from Northwest Nazarene University. Uh, yeah, and uh, she, she has recently accepted an assignment on the Asia-Pacific region as a missionary to Mongolia. How many of you know where Mongolia is? Yeah, okay. Well, it's good to just kind of remember your geography. I can't really pronounce the name of the town. U-L-A-A-N-B-A-A-T-A-R. <laughs> Ulaanbaatar. Okay. That's how, when I was in, um, <laughs> in Poland recently, I couldn't pronounce their names either. <laughs> The names of some of the towns is difficult. But we welcome you. She is currently working at the VA hospital in, uh, she, she graduated with a degree in nursing and is working at the VA hospital in Boise. Um, and she has a master's degree from Drexel University on complementary and integrative health. So her emphasis, understanding, um, science and how God glorifies us in many ways and uses us in many ways. And currently you've, you're, um, have also done, um, teaching English as a second language. You've got certification in that as well. Um, yeah, hi. I, I welcome you, Lydia, and it, we're excited to hear how God is going to be using you in Mongolia. As you heard, um, my name is Lydia Campbell-White, and I'm preparing to go as a missionary to Mongolia with the Church of the Nazarene. Um, I'll be leaving around the end of June of this year, and uh, my official title is Disciple Maker. And what I've been told that that means is that 
I am going to go to language school for two years, but um, during that time, I'll be making connections with the local church in Ulaanbaatar, that's the capital of um, Mongolia, and I think uh, on the slide up there, yeah, you can see Mongolia is just above China, it's between China and Russia, um, and those are the only two countries it's bordered by. It kind of looks like it touches Kazakhstan, but it doesn't. Um, and uh, my focus will be on working with college age and high school age folks. Um, thank you so much for having me here today. So when I was first asked to go to Mongolia, I didn't really know a whole lot about it beyond what I learned in school about you know, Genghis Khan and the Mongol horde. So I thought I'd start by sharing with a little bit of what I've learned about Mongolia with all of you. So I haven't learned to speak Mongolian yet. And like I said, I'll be attending language school, but I did learn how to say hello in Mongolian. So we're all gonna practice that together. So it's Sanbats Genu. And literally this means, are you all good? So this is something I would say to you, it's plural, so you wouldn't say it back to me. What you would say is, San Sambanu. San Sambanu. And that means, I'm good, are you good? So let's try it again. San Batsganu. San Good, yes, so now you can all greet people in Mongolian. <laughs> so as you can see on the screen, oh, I keep turning the wrong way, um, they use the Cyrillic alphabet. Uh, that top line is traditional Mongolian script, but they don't really use that so much anymore there. They've transitioned to just using the Cyrillic alphabet. And then the bottom is just pronunciation for my sake and your sake. Like, they wouldn't write it that way. Um, I'm trying to learn to read the Cyrillic alphabet, but it is tricky. It's like they smashed Greek and English and then some other made-up language in there. Uh, one of the first things I learned about Mongolia is that it's very cold there. I'll be going to the capital, Ulaanbaatar, and it is the coldest capital in the world. Uh, the average temperature in January is negative 12.5 degrees Fahrenheit with lows around negative 40. July and August are the warmest months with temperatures ranging from 52 to 78 degrees. So it's pretty, it's sort of nice during that time, but I definitely won't be bringing any shorts with me. <laughs> Mongolians are really big on horse culture and horse race racing is one of their three traditional sports along with uh, archery and wrestling. Um, and you can see their traditional costume for horse racing there. When I say they're big on horse culture, I mean that there's 13 times more horses than humans in Mongolia. And Mongolia is the last place in the world that has truly wild horses. They have like a different genetic structure, just a little bit, than tame horses, I guess. Traditionally, uh, Mongolians lived as nomads, and about a quarter of the population still does. Um, nomads live in Gurs, which I think I have, yeah, that's the wrestling, and then I should have a slide, yeah, Gurs, and we would call them yurts. Um, Mongolian people are known for being hospitable. So the nice thing about the Gurs is they're portable and you can kind of just put them on a cart and then drive off somewhere else and graze your sheep or whatever you want to do while you're being a nomad. If you visited a Mongolian family in their Gur, they would probably offer you Irig, which is a popular traditional drink. And it would be very rude to refuse. Irig is salty, warm, fermented mare's milk. I've heard the consistency is a little bit like phlegm. So... <laughs> I'm sure it's an acquired taste. Uh, so why would I go to a place where you have to drink fermented phlegm milk? I'm glad you asked. So I grew up in the church and I knew God from a young age. 
I first felt the call to missions when I was about seven years old. Uh, when I was five or six, my, son, my Sunday school teacher went to be a missionary, and I remember her explaining to the class what that meant. This was the first time that I had really heard about missionaries. After that, my family moved to a different state, but I was still thinking about missions. When I was little, I used to wake up early sometimes and sit on the end of my bed and uh, wait for the rest of my family to wake up. So one morning I was doing this and I was talking with God and asking him about what he wanted me to do and that was when he called me to be a missionary. I went and told my parents that morning and my family and my church were very supportive. I always like to be doing things and preparing for things so I felt that being a missionary was not something that should just wait until I should wait until I grew up to start doing. So I learned what I could about missionaries and I read a lot of missionary biographies. One of my favorites was about Gladys Aylward. One of the things that always struck me about her story was how the people around her told her that she would not make a good missionary. They said that she was too old and that she wasn't smart enough to be a missionary and to learn a new language and adapt to a new culture. But Gladys was so sure that this was what God was asking of her that she just went on her own. Uh, she went through a war zone just to get to China, raised her own funds, paid her own ticket, and went without the support of anyone really. And then when she finally arrived there, the person she thought had been waiting for her had left, and she was alone. But she didn't give up. She just kept on giving God all that she had, wherever she was. And even though everyone else thought that what Gladys had to give was not enough, God used what she had and worked great things through her. He provided her the opportunity to witness in prisons. He paved the way for her to lead children to safety um, during a war. And he opened the door for her to travel across China to assist the government in bringing an end to foot binding. In fact, the government even paid for her travels during this time. And when she told them that while she was going to be going in homes, she would be telling people about Jesus, they said they didn't care as long as she would also be removing their foot bindings. So everywhere she went, Gladys shared the gospel with everyone she met, funded by the government, and hundreds of women were saved both physically and spiritually. I, unlike Gladys, have a good support system all my life of people who have affirmed my call to missions. However, it's good to know that God doesn't need someone to be a particular thing in order to use them. He doesn't need us to have particular skills or talents in order to be a missionary. Furthermore, we can bring our skills and talents to God and lay them down before him for his use, but he might not use them the way that we thought, and that's okay. So, uh, like Connie mentioned, I'm a nurse, and one of the reasons I trained to be a nurse is because I thought it would be useful on the missions field. It might be, but that is not what I'm going to go to Mongolia to do. But like Gladys, I know that God will use me in the way that he sees best, and that's so much better than whatever I had in mind. People ask me a lot what I see myself doing on the mission field, and I always say that I don't know. I like nursing, I also like teaching, I like music, I'm good at working with children. Maybe God will use all of these things or none of these things as I join his work in Mongolia. When we present ourselves to God and lay ourselves down to follow him, that means laying down all our gifts and everything we are. It isn't presenting ourselves to God and saying, these are my gifts, this is what I can do, and this is best how you can best use me in your plan. It's laying down our gifts and our lives before God to use or to not use as he sees fit. He already knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what we're capable of now and what we can do with him working through us and in us. Gladys Elward easily could have said, you know what, 
it seems like I'm getting a sign here and God could maybe use me better in England doing something else and not being a missionary. But she didn't. She chose to lay herself, her life down and be faithful to what God had asked her, even though it seemed crazy. Matthew 16, 24 through 25 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Laying down our lives doesn't just mean, mean being willing to die for God. It also means being willing to live for him. Denying ourselves and laying down our own goals and our gifts and desires and giving all of that up to God. Giving up those things is hard, especially because sometimes the things that we're giving up aren't bad things or bad desires to have. However, what we gain in Christ is always worth far more than what we give up. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Similarly, laying down our lives means going where God asks and not where it makes sense to us. I actually didn't originally want to go to Mongolia. I wanted to go to China. I have learned a little Chinese. I've learned a little bit of a few languages, actually, none of which are remotely related to Mongolian or will really help me in learning that language. <laughs> also, every time I mention to Mongolia to anyone, horses come up. As I pointed out earlier, Mongolia is really big into horse culture, but I'm not really. I don't dislike horses. I just have never really understood the fascination. They're horses. <laughs> Mongolia is also a high desert, and I'm not entirely fond of deserts. I like living in humid places, and I love the ocean. And as you can see, well, or as you could see earlier, Mongolia is landlocked. I'm excited to go there, but Mongolia is not the place I would have chosen as a natural fit for myself. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph was his father's favorite son, and he had prophetic dreams. His brothers were so jealous of him that they sold him to slave traders and made their father believe that he had been killed by wild animals. Joseph was sold to Potiphar, the captain of the guard. And for a while, it seemed like things were going pretty well, despite the fact that he was still a slave in Egypt. Genesis 39, 2-6 says of this time, The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. But then, Potiphar's wife attempted to seduce Joseph, and when she failed, she accused him of attacking her. Joseph was thrown into prison for a crime he didn't commit. But then, in verses 20 through 23, it says, But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. While Joseph was in prison, he met two other inmates, Pharaoh's baker and cupbearer. God gave Joseph the ability to interpret their dreams of the future. And just as God has, had revealed to Joseph, the baker was executed and the cupbearer was set free. 
Two full years later, the cupbearer finally remembered that Joseph was in prison and mentioned him to Pharaoh, since Pharaoh needed his dreams interpreted. God gave Joseph the interpretation to Pharaoh's dream, that Egypt and the surrounding lands would face seven years of abundance, followed by seven years of famine. Not only this, but God also gave Joseph the wisdom to propose a plan to save Egypt. And at that time, Pharaoh, just like Potiphar and just like the warden of the prison, put Joseph in charge. Joseph was second only to Pharaoh himself in all of Egypt. God again blessed Joseph and those around him. Once the famine started, Joseph's brothers came to Canaan to get grain. They didn't recognize Joseph, but he recognized them. And after messing with them for a little bit, like brothers do, he revealed himself to them as their brother, Joseph, and he forgave them. In Genesis 45, 4 through 8, it says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph had his brothers return to Canaan and bring back their father and all of their families. Through Joseph's faithfulness, the entire family of Israel and the nation of Egypt were saved. When Joseph was in Egypt, he wasn't there by his own will. He didn't choose to go to Egypt. He was taken there as a slave under horrible circumstances. However, he remained faithful to God in a situation he didn't want to be in, in a country he hadn't planned on being in, and God used his faithfulness to save both Israel and Egypt from famine. When he was sold as a slave to Potiphar, Joseph was faithful, and God blessed him and those around him. When Joseph was then thrown in prison, it would have been easy to think that God had abandoned him, that God was no longer working in his life, that God surely could have used him better somewhere else, somewhere where he was free. But Joseph was still faithful, and God blessed him, even there in prison. And if Joseph had not been in prison, he would never have met the cupbearer who told Pharaoh about him in his dreams. At every moment in Joseph's life, he was where God needed him to be. And even when it didn't make sense, Joseph remained faithful and did what God asked. Joseph laid down his life and surrendered his will to let God do whatever he wanted, and God worked wonders through him. Now, I'm definitely going to Mongolia under better circumstances than Joseph went to Egypt, and don't get me wrong, I am very excited about it. But it isn't what I would have picked out or planned for myself, and that's good. Like Joseph and like Gladys Aylward, I can trust that God's plan is better than mine, even if I don't know exactly what it is yet or what exactly I'll be doing. The one thing I know is that I love telling stories, and I know I'll be doing that. However, even in this, it's not my own story. I can make up some pretty good stories, but God's story is so much better than anything I could ever dream up, and that's what I'll be doing. Telling God's story, not just with my words, but with everything I do. It doesn't really matter what else I do in Mongolia, as long as I'm telling God's story. A missionary can look like pretty much anything. God can call anyone he chooses and use absolutely anyone to proclaim his word. It doesn't matter what you look like, what you do for a living, what you know how to do, your past experience, the situation you're in, how old you are, or anything. God can still use you. I mean, one time he even used a donkey, so the bar is set pretty low. <laughs> 
Like Gladys and Joseph, all we have to do is be faithful and say yes to whatever God asks us wherever we are. thirsty. Christianity has been in Mongolia since about the 7th century. Uh, Monkey Khan, I think I have, yep, there's a picture of him, uh, the grandson of Genghis Khan, was a Christian in the 1200s. Monkey told different missionaries who arrived in Mongolia that he wished all his subjects would worship the Messiah, but that he couldn't force them to change their religion. Dokuz Khan. Uh, Dokuz Katun, sorry, a Mongolian princess who lived around the same time, influenced her husband, Hulagu Khan, who's sitting next to her in the picture there, um, to spare the Christians during the siege of Baghdad. During that time, 90,000 people were killed in Baghdad, and the entire city was destroyed. But thanks to Dokuz's influence, all the Christians in the city were saved. In 1271, Kublai Khan Monkey's younger brother, who succeeded him as Khan, wrote Pope Gregory X a letter asking him to send 100 men, saying that if they were convincing, I shall be baptized, and then all my barons and great men, and then their subjects. And so there will be more Christians here than there are in your parts. But sadly, the Pope only sent two missionaries out of the 100 that he'd asked for, and neither made it to the Khan. By the time other missionaries finally made it to Mongolia, Kublai Khan had converted to Buddhism. Today, only 2.1% of the Mongolian population are Christians, while 35 to 53% are Buddhists. Although only a small percentage of Mongolians are Christians, Mongolia has already sent out missionaries of their own through different Christian denominations. And Mongolian Christianity often looks different than what Westerners are used to. Traditionally, the Mongolian people were nomads, and about 25% of Mongolians still uh, live a nomadic lifestyle today. Mongolian Christians didn't often have, year, have uh, church buildings because they live in Gurs. One of the first churches of the Nazarene in Mongolia was called the First Yurt of the Nazarene. <laughs> Mongolians are already accustomed to traveling, and hospitality is a big part of their culture. In 2017, Christianity in Mongolia was growing at an annual rate of 7.5%, the eighth fastest in the world. God has been working in Mongolia since the beginning and is working there now. Luke 2.10 says, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. If we rectify the mistake from 700 years ago and send out workers, people to witness to Mongolians, they're ready and their culture and history basically make them ready-made missionaries. God is already at work in Mongolia. His story there is well in progress, and I'm so excited to join that story and see what happens next. I don't know what to expect there or what God has for me to do, but I do know that God is there and that he does know, and that's enough for me. There's a book I really like by George MacDonald called The Princess and Curdie. In this book, Curdie's a boy sent out on a quest by a great princess, when she's sending him, before she even tells him anything about where he'll be going or what the goal is, she asks if he's ready. And Curdie responds, yes, ma'am. The princess says, you do not know what for. And Curdie answers, you do, ma'am. That is enough. It is enough for me to know that God knows where I'm going to be uh, going and what I'm going to be doing. Because of his faithfulness to me, because I know he will be with me, I can be faithful and say yes to whatever he asks of me. So how are you participating in God's story today? Where can you see his workmanship in your life? Maybe you're at a point like Joseph in prison, 
where it's hard to see how this could possibly be a part of God's plan. Or maybe you're at a place where it's easy to see God at work in your life. Either way, the point is that we don't need to know exactly where we're at in the story because we know who's writing it, so of course it's going to be good. As you leave today, I would encourage you to look for God's hand in your life and to be faithful in whatever he's asking you to do, wherever you are. The God who saved two nations through a slave boy who was faithful is working in our lives as well and will do wonders through us. I'd like to close with a passage from Isaiah 55. In these verses, God speaks of his overarching plan and story, one beyond our comprehension and our vision. And he promises that he's able to complete this plan. God says in these verses that when his word goes out, it does not return empty, but accomplishes his purpose. All we have to do is be faithful to what he asks, and God will do the work through us. Isaiah 55, 8 through 12. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out with joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst forth into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. We have a tradition here of receiving a benediction with our hands extended. So will you stand as I offer this benediction this morning? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks for joining us today on the Mountain Home Church the Nazarene podcast. Don't forget to visit us at mhnazarene.org connect if you'd like to connect with us and have a great week.